Let's start. Sounds wise. Bob, our, he, wait, just sorry, sir. Child it's going to be a heart transplant? No, a heart valve. A heart valve. valve. He's almost 80. I say our granddaughter lost her child yeah. in the first trimester. Yeah, mm -hmm. what was her name? The child's name is Hope. Hope. And the, the granddaughter's name? Marisa. Marisa. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, two friends' husbands were in a car accident. Um, two George, friends' husbands? Yeah, George, they were, they were, which was so well, George Gibson, Linda George Gibson, and uh, Roger Gilby. Are they all right, or? They're okay. One's, in, one's suffering from whiplash, and one is still in the hospital. We're doing some tests on to make sure he's okay. George and? Um, Roger. Roger? Mm -hmm. Let's start. Okay. Um, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. Um, we're here as a gift. Um, I ask a special grace that all of us be strengthened, particularly in this Advent, um, to offer ourselves as gifts, to put ourselves away so that we can more completely give ourselves and bring you to what we do. Thank you for um, the offering of yourself to us in the Mass this morning. Um, help us to give ourselves to the life um, of you that we carry within us so that we are more completely one with you. Um, Juan Diego, I ask a special blessing. Um, take our prayers to Mary and to Christ and the Spirit um, whatever burdens any of us carries, um, let them be lightened, um, help us all to be strengthened um, um, with the help of Christ and the Spirit. Um, and I ask a blessing on all pilgrims going to the cathedral in Guadalupe. Um, help us all to know that so much of our life should be a pilgrimage, that we're always hopefully moving closer to you. Um, let us all be strengthened in our efforts during this Advent to put ourselves away, to genuinely wait, to learn to put the world away um, so that um, all that we do um, is a form of waiting, trusting, hoping um, for the um, new birth in you that we will experience in Christmas. Um, let all this be ask for a special um, care for Bill in his um, surgery. Um, Marina? Marisa. Marisa. Um, I ask um, a special grace for Marisa too and um, her husband and for their 
um, unborn child. Um, let their sorrow be eased um, with a sure knowledge that they will see that child again in heaven. Um, that a great surprise is awaiting them. Um, help them to feel a joy, genuinely a joy in their hearts in the midst of this sorrow. Um, be with um, George and Roger. Um, help them recover from their accident. Um, ask for a special blessing on Mason and his son Roderick. Um, whatever wounds or burdens we carry in our heart this Advent, let them be eased some um, by our trust in you and the joy um, that we that we carry um, in our trust in seeing you one day. Father asked if Christ was our joy. <laughs> My answer to that is yes. And I want to give personal thanks for Father as our joy and what he brings to us um, as a priest. We offer these prayers, um, our hopes in them, our thanksgiving, in you, our Lord Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, can you take out, uh, wait, before we start, you all know January 8th is the potluck. If, if you all haven't signed up, can you please sign up for some meal? Because we've got we've to organize this so we have enough food in all the areas. I, uh, main dishes, salads, or whatever we're going to have. Um, we've got to have dessert for sure. So, nope. Something to carry us through while we watch the movie. So I am not bringing dessert. No, bringing oh, you're not? No. I got dessert. That night? Oh, you mean, well, you, you signed up, Don, haven't you? Okay. Yeah. I'm going to bring the lasagna again because everybody seemed to like it. Oh, great. Your, great. House, so. Great. Okay. Well, I want to. I want to. I'm going to be first in line. Good. I love them. Good. And I'll um, just want to make it again for the popcorn. So January 8th. Remember, is everybody? Remember, um, I'm asking everybody to start coming at 4:15, so we can set out the meals. And I'm hoping that more parishioners from the congregation will show up. Um, we're gonna. I'm gonna make two announcements at Mass and ask whoever, if anybody does, um, for them to bring food as well. So hopefully it'll be a, a good feast night. Um, bring, come at 4.15, we'll start eating. And I do, I want to start the movie at 5.30. Yeah, so I'm gonna give a half hour presentation just to lay out some things for you to be aware of when you watch the movie, because I think it'll help. I think it'll help you appreciate what Shakespeare is doing in the movie. And then we'll plan to have one meeting on Winter's Tale afterwards, and then we'll start Moby Dick, and we will be well into the modern world. Then, although we're already, here, I hope you're all feeling that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to make a point of it this morning, and the, the notions, the thoughts I have in my mind. Um, I think that's it. Okay, can you take out Shakespeare? Yeah. One other thing, Mass will be done on four thirty, and Father has asked that we not disrupt Mass by trooping in.
So you can come in, the kitchen door is back here, or you can come in this door and come directly here, but don't come uh, in on the far side of the church. Uh, uh, yeah. okay. Father generally asks that there be no activities, and I asked him if he would make an exception so we could start the movie early. So it's really important if everybody just planned to come through this side of the church. Movie Dick, are you going to have copies for us to purchase here? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Does everybody have copies of Winter's Tale? I hope so. Yes. Okay. Can, do you have your Shakespeare? Um, very, very quickly, I, I think I've said this before, I'm not sure you're all here, but remember Shakespearean sonnet is peculiar to him and it's a, he established it and people like um, Robert Frost and other poets would have written in the same form. It's got three quatrains, three groups of four lines, rhyming, rhyming quatrains, followed by a couplet. and. People don't ordinarily see that. All they see is the technical form. But I've made this point before. It's really important to see this. The, the fact that he gives us three exempla, three examples, three exempla of a theme makes it clear that Shakespeare is still living at a time when being, this notion of being, is important. Because how could the three things relate unless they shared a being with each other. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. Okay? There are three different aspects of being itself. So they're not just distinct examples. The fact that they relate to each other shows that they share a nature. So, and the fact that he can make a conclusion at the end shows he's still in a world of being. This is going to go right, right to the, one of the major points that I'm going to make this morning. Is that all clear? In the modern world, people don't believe in being anymore. I am that am. Uh, Yahweh, being, I am being. That notion of being is gone. We, we have lost the sense of metaphysics. The modern world has no sense of being anymore. Most people are empiricists or, or nominalists. And if you know anything about your history, you know that the great, one of the great battles during the Middle Ages was between nominalists who said there are no universals, there's nothing like being. There are no universals. There's only particulars. If there's only particulars, then, then there is um, there's a question whether or not there's a God who is being itself. And if, if, um, if there isn't universals, what's our relationship to him? I mean, it will affect our understanding of Christ and it will affect our understanding of the Trinity. So the great battle in the Middle Ages was between the nominalists who said there are no universals, we just have names of things, and um, the realists. Today, we live in a world of nominalists. Few serious thinkers believe in being anymore. So what, it's not just a technical issue here behind this structure is a, is a notion of being or Shakespeare couldn't do this. He's a realist in that sense, in the sense in which I'm using it, that there is a real, the, the Trinity and God being itself. Because we, we live in a world of becoming. It comes and goes. God is. He is being itself. That's why in the Old Testament he says, I am that am. I am being itself. Okay. Um, I'm, I want to read the just 
the, the two poems on the front page, 130 and 72. Remember that in Sonnet 130, he's got Petrarch in his mind because pre Petrarch tended to idealize women. So he's presenting his wife, his beloved, um, in terms of a poem that we don't have in front of us, but anybody reading this knows there's another poem that's implied in this. I've gone over and over and over this notion that, that hopefully one of the things you've taken away from this is we, we've learned from our reading that there's always more going on in a text than is visible in the literal words in front of us. We, we learned that early on. When we read the Odyssey, we, we, knew, we, we, we knew that so much of what was, was going on in the, in the Odyssey already existed in the Iliad. If we didn't read the Iliad, we'd miss a lot. By the time we got to Virgil, that was even more important because we knew that the six books of the Iliad and the six books of the Odyssey were in Virgil's book. He rewrote them. The first six books were based on the wanderings, the Odyssey. The last six books of the Aeneid were based on the Iliad, the wars. But they were all rewritten. So Virgil showed us, he, one of the great things that Virgil made us aware of is that the poet is a spokesman for a people, but he's also a spokesman for the past, that he carries it forward, changing it as he goes. In that sense, he's already looking forward to Christianity. The whole idea of a calling in Aeneas, carrying the past forward and transforming it as he goes. That was his quest, to come out of that old past and found Rome, okay? So we've learned that there's another world contained in poetry that isn't visible in the words themselves. But we have to read with, with an awareness. There are other dimensions of meaning in a larger world. It's the logos. The logos is present, active everywhere. So we're, we're, we're learning to read, to take seriously what's in front of us, and also be aware that there are other dimensions of meaning there that are not visible. Changes our way of reading. It should make us aware, like Plato's cave, we have to take seriously the images in front of us while always knowing there's more that we have to learn to see. It's a different way of reading that we've been engaged in. So 130 has Petrarch and the whole romantic tradition of idealizing the woman. If we don't know that, part of the irony will be missed because everything that Shakespeare says in this one poem is, is meant to be seen as a contrast to Petrarch, who would have nothing but flattering overstatements about his beloved. He, he would weep and talk about tears and her beauty being beyond anything we've ever seen before. If we don't have, if we don't have a sense of that, we won't appreciate what Shakespeare's saying here. So Shakespeare's a realist. He, he's faithful to what's in front of us, while at the same time making us aware that there's something more. So on at 130. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked, red and white. But no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. <laughs> I think that's a lovely line because I think, well, I do. You know, you hear, you hear priests warn 
newlyweds all the time, you know, the honeymoon will be over, you will wake up that first night and, <laughs> and you'll start after dealing with bad breasts, bad hair, you know, not being pretty or looking good or and the honeymoon will be over and you'll have to learn your, to love the beloved with all of their failings and faults. So. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go, my mistress when she walks treads on the ground. And yet by heaven I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. And I asked this question, I remember the first time I read it. Who's the greater lover? Petrarch in saying, oh, you are a goddess and I've never seen anybody like you. Or Shakespeare saying, you know, my, my mistress walks on the, she's got her feet on earth. She's, she's not a goddess. Um, and yet she will compare with any false, or she, she will stand next to any false comparison with others. It seems to me this is a more it seems like an attack on idealism. Yes, it is. Well, I mean, it's yeah, like, more realistic. Yeah. yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. Sonnet 73. Again, um, the, I mean, look at, it's four quatrains rhyming, each of them, concluded by a couplet. Here he's speaking about death and making the point that because we're all dying, we should learn to love more fully that which we know we will lose. We, we shouldn't wait until we're old to learn to love that way because we don't know when the day will come for any of us. I mean, we all know, we all know people who have been widowed for, you know, 15 years. I mean, they could have lost their spouses really young. Who knows? We don't know the day. Anyway, <clears throat> he's, 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 de he's describing that moment when death will come in terms of three different things. The season, it's winter. The time of day, it's twilight when the sun will go down. And a fire going out. You know, there was, there's a moment when a fire will rage, but it's, it's very raging, burns itself out. It will consume itself. <coughs> Sonnet 73. That time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare rune choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up all unrest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Okay. Um, I want to do this. Just a very, very quick review, and then I want to I want to go back to the notions of genres that I introduced to you guys. I think last time, um, because there's some really important things um, for all of us to see 
about literature that we won't see if we don't understand this notion of genres. Did everybody get, there's just a wonderful feast we had this morning. Bev brought something, Don brought something. I don't know if anybody else did, but there's some really good food if any of you came in late and would like some. Um, very, very quickly, quick review. We've been looking at this idea of the city and we've seen in Venice a prototype for us. It's the, it's the Venice and Florence and Dante's Divine Comedy were the prototypes of our regime. So Dante and Shakespeare, we can say, are prophetic in the sense that they went to the very essence of our, our, of our, of our political being, <clears throat> who we are, our identity as a people produced by a commercial republic, that kind of regime. It's given to commerce and trade and entrepreneurship. So, wow, is it warm? Usually we're freezing in here. It's the first time I think I've felt heat in here in the last year. Um, and we saw in, in Merchant of Venice that Venice is um, the usurious city. It, it, it thrives on taking advantage of people in need. People make money on the neediness of people. That's how it thrives. We called it the sterile city because it breeds money. And we, I called it at the end the unreal city. That's a phrase I'm taking from Eliot in the wasteland because it seems to me it's an apt, it's an apt phrase. There's almost nothing going on in Venice that's health-giving. There are no marriages. We don't see anybody being born. And we don't see love. Um, we see justice. Portia has to come from outside the city to realize it, right? Um, Shakespeare's showing us that nobody in the city, nobody who's a product of the Venetian world, no lawyer could come in and do what she does. Somebody has to come from outside the city. And it, it's a woman. And it has to be somebody with a sense of philosophy. Because only somebody who understood the natural end of the law could do that. Remember, she, she outsmarts Shylock at his own game. Yes. She reads the contract more legalistically than he does. But with this difference, Shylock, doesn't, Shylock wants the end of the law as it benefits him. She wants to attain, to attain the, the, law, the ends of the law for the justice of the city. Because we know if Shylock gets his way, Antonio dies. If Antonio gets off, the city dies. In either case, the city dies. So it's only by virtue of what Portia does that the city is saved, that justice is realized for a community. And we know that they, they leave. They go back to Belmont. Because Belmont is the place where marriages and families can thrive. The city, in some ways, is unnatural. It's unreal. Okay, this is all we've done it. So this is all review. But um, so we call Venice the unreal city. In in Othello, we see the dark, the darker side of what happens. And what we see there is a city in which people believe that reason is sufficient for everything. They don't need God. Remember that that quote. Boy, is it warm. <laughs> Is, will that turn it down, Doc? Do you know? Can we do something? No? no? I think it's set. Yeah. Um, 
I'm going to start undressing here. How would that be? No, thanks. No, actually, um, that'd be great. Thanks. Oh, it's cold, too. Thank you. Um, Venice is the um, sufficient city. Remember that quote of Iago where he says, if the, if the devil persuaded you to um, worship God, you wouldn't because um, the devil being the devil, you, you would do whatever was opposite of what he would say. <coughs> the irony of that is the devil could trick you you know, the, the people in Venice think that reason is sufficient in itself. That, and it goes along with what we talked about in the beginning of the city. Remember, the city comes into existence when Cain is, is sent into exile and Enoch makes the city. So the city is an attempt to live without God. That's the nature of the human city. In, in biblically, in the, in the biblical tradition. But what Shakespeare's showing us in Othello is that because that's so, the basis of the city is reason, that people think reason is sufficient to answer everything. That's why Brabantio says, remember when Rodrigo comes up saying thief, 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 and Brabantio says, what do you say thief? This isn't a Grange, this is Venice. Those things don't happen there. We know that and, and suburbia is the ideal of that. You, you get away from the city and by going into suburbia. And the great irony is you take crimes with you because drugs, adultery, I mean, everything goes on in the suburbia today. Um, because it's based on the sufficiency of reason, people don't have any way really of dealing with evil. They tend to look at everything outside the world of reason in terms of charms, magic, spells, Medicines. Remember, that's the language of Brabantio and everybody else. They they don't they don't deal with evil, and that's I suggested that's why Iago has the power that he does. Venice is a world that's based on the sufficiency of reason. People are too trusting of a, of appearances. They're easily fooled because they're not on guard with reason. Christ is wise as the serpent, gentle as the dove. You know. Um, what we see is almost everybody is, is harmed. Um, and it's interesting that Iago a attacks everybody right where they most love. And remember, we saw Iago is the image of the, of the anti-Christ, the anti-God. I am not what I am. I quoted those lines, I'm not what I am. He's the anti-God, the anti-Yahweh. Um, his whole purpose in life is to destroy what's good. And it's interesting, I've said this, if you look at all the regimes, and, and I gave you that political, that handout, you know, where, where you see all the regimes that Shakespeare covered, Venice is the one regime in, in which evil seems to do best. It's inherent in this regime. We produce it, why? Because we're given to the head, the intellect. Capitalism means head to be resourceful with our minds. So people are, are so busy being resourceful with their minds to make money, they're not on guard against the evil that's always present. I mean, Shakespeare's very aware of all of this, or he wouldn't have created this play. When we ended last week, I asked this question, where was Christ? And I know some of you had difficulty seeing Christ in 
Othello, but I want to go back to that and, and ask you to give this some serious thought because it, it goes to this whole question of reading. I've been saying from the very beginning that we don't read very well as people. Take Hamlet. I mean, just take Hamlet as an example. How many people understand Hamlet in the play? How many people read him correctly? Zilch, nobody. Even Hamlet makes some real mistakes reading. There's not a work that we've read in which we've seen characters who read well, maybe except Portia, with that exception. In every work we've read, the poet is showing us that people really don't see what's in front of them very well. As humans, we don't, we're in the cave, we don't read very well. And I think it's important to, to see the nobility of Othello or we lose something of really what's happening there, what poetry is meant to help us to do. Did, did, you, did you give your explanation of this class? You didn't, Doc. Su Suzanne and I were talking about it, I think even before last class, I'm not sure, but I, at least I know afterwards, um, because I know that she, she was having a hard time finding Christ in Othello, and I was making the case that he's there, but um, can you, Go over what I mean exactly as the insight came to you. What happened? Can you? Would you mind? So we've been looking at literature and looking at it as um, prophetic. So Homer, Iliad, Odyssey. Um, I'm going to sit down and let her come up here. Oh. <laughs> and um, we could find Christ um, in intimations. In those words. Um, but then Christ came. And so then we don't have... Does everybody understand what intimations is? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so when he came, we have the fullness of perfection in him. We don't have to look for him the way we did in um, Aeneas and Achilles. Um, Achilles. Because we have the fullness of perfection, which means going forward, we can't look for. I mean, I wasn't looking for anything but perfection. So I have, you know, I can I can stretch that a little bit and find Christ in Portia, because she's such a virtuous woman. Um, but I had a really hard time finding that in Othello, um, and. Robert kept insisting that there was Christ in the play, and um, and I know that Othello is a noble character, um, and I thought about it overnight because I do trust my husband's instincts. I want that in writing. And it seems to me that um, that you can find Christ in Othello in the way that we're asked by Christ to find him in everyone. So there are, he's not, he's not Christ. He's not as virtuous as Portia. Um, but there is a nobility in him and a love in him which gets perverted by, by Iago. Um, but there is a great love in him, and there is nobility in him. So you can see 
I can't see if I work out. Thanks. I want to see this is going to throw me off here for a minute. Uh, you don't have time. Hmm? You don't have time to be <laughs> The wife comes back. <laughs> um, reading poetry, that's where I was going. Let me get to this. I'm gonna. I'm gonna need to do this. Let me stop here and pick this up again because this is this is too major. And I'm gonna. I'm gonna. In fact, let me let me say this outright. I think the last class had some difficulties. I'm gonna make a. I'm gonna make a statement here that may shock everybody, but I believe it. And we'll see what you do with it, and then I want to come back to it because I want to finish up here. I'm gonna say this as a general statement, to try to make sense of, of, of what I'm trying to say about Othello and Hamlet and tragedy in general. I'm going to come to that in a minute. The statement I want to make is this, that our minds, all of us, our minds are diseased. We think, we think we have healthy minds. We think we understand well. One of the things that I've been pressing at everybody from the very beginning is that poetry teaches us to see things in a new way and to feel things. Um, so I want to just throw that out and then I'm going to make sense of it as it relates to the play in a second. But I'm going to say this, the modern mind, the modern mind is diseased. That we, we, we live with disordered minds far more than we understand we do. Now just leave it for a second and I'm going to come back and try to make that clear, okay? So we've talked about the cities, the city. We're shifting from Venice to Denmark. And what we're going to find in Denmark is an, another form of a, of a disordered city in the modern world. And it's, it's modern in this sense. It's totalitarian. Claudius presumes to be able to control everything that goes on. And if that isn't clear, let me make it perfectly clear. By totalitarian, that means everything, including the soul of a human being. Because he's doing everything he can to find out what's at the heart of Hamlet's soul and get control of that. That's why totalitarian regimes want to get control of religions because religions believe in something outside the boundaries of that totalitarian world. So Shakespeare knows that. Claudius puts Polonius and he puts Rosencrantz and Guildenstern on Hamlet to find out what's going on. He's unnerved by Hamlet's madness. Imagine the effect that that would have on a man who wants to have complete control of it. Hamlet makes him nervous because he doesn't feel like he understands him to get control. The equation of the modern world is knowledge equals power. The more you know, the more control you have. It's one of the fundamental problems of the modern world mind. So it's totalitarian. It's also reformation. It's got a darkened character to it. The basis of everything that happens in this play is the revelation of the ghost, and it's absolutely private. Nobody but Hamlet knows what that ghost says. So we're watching in Hamlet is a man carrying a private revelation. Where did he get it? Here. Where is he a student? Wittenberg. Wittenberg is where Luther put up his theses. One of the major ones would have had the effect of making religious a private matter. Shakespeare knows that. This reason, this, one of the reasons Hamlet is such an unsettling play is because he's showing us 
not in terms of ideas, not in terms of arguments. Shakespeare doesn't judge. He's showing us by experience. We enter into a man who's absolutely unhinged because he, he gets this experience from the, the ghost of his father who says, avenge my death. Well, he goes out and kills Claudius, and um, everybody says, what are you doing? Amlet said, ghost told me to do it. What's everybody to think? This experience puts him absolutely at odds with the whole political, social world of his time. So Shakespeare's going right to the heart of Reformation matter, but he's not doing it in terms of an argument, he's doing it in terms of experience. We actually enter in what I'm going to call the Protestant soul, unhinged, private. How do you, how do, how do you take your bearings on anything in the world anymore? So in Denmark, he's giving us another picture of something modern, the disorders, another set of disorders that are a part of our world and what happens. So we have to learn to read this the way we read Othello. I mean, Hamlet is a noble, noble man, but he's absolutely unhinged. And he, I think I've said this before, and he actually puts his own soul in danger of damnation. Why? Because as soon as he puts on the mousetrap play, and it confirms what his, the ghost of his father said, that Claudius is the killer. Remember, he had to test it out. And the mousetrap play proves it. The very next scene, he's ready to kill Claudius. People who say that Hamlet's a procrastinator are not reading the play well. He's not a procrastinator. He's ready to kill him. And we, and we know that because in the very next scene, he stabs Polonius thinking it's Claudius. So this is a man who's not willing to act. He doesn't act, he doesn't kill Claudius at prayer. Why? Exactly. That he says, that's higher in salary. That's a good way to avenge my father, send this man to heaven for, you know, he's not going to do it. But, but to do that, this is, and it's amazing, it's one of the most interesting, and I don't, critics don't even pay attention to this. 90% of the critics don't even see it. For him to want to damn Claudius, puts his own soul in danger of damnation because man does not have that prerogative. For him to put himself in that place is to put himself in the place of God. Use not thy Lord's name in vain. That doesn't mean don't swear. It means don't speak for God. The ultimate end of a man's soul is in God's hands, not ours. So even though nothing happens, he doesn't kill anybody, doesn't do anything violent, he walks by. In that moment, he faces the gravest danger he does. How well are we reading? Do we even see that? Shakespeare's showing us again and again and again, we don't understand what's right in front of us. We so often miss. If somebody were watching Hamlet at that moment, would they have seen inside of him? Would they have seen this? Not a way. So um, we're seeing another, another perspective on the modern city in Denmark, okay? Now, let me go to this notion of poetry, because um, I keep adding to it, um, hopefully, week by week. One of the things that poetry is teaching us to do, it's been doing it all along, is to see holes. I've been saying this from the beginning. Poetry teaches us to see holes, the whole of the Iliad, the whole of the Odyssey, the whole of, you know, the, the Divine Comedy is probably the most complete hole we have. It helps us to get out of our self-centered, egotistic worlds. That so often, because we're left to ourselves, we, we put ourselves at the center of a world, 
And there's so much going on around us that we don't see. Yeah, I'm trusting that all of us see that. To stand in these plays makes us aware that there's a much larger world going on and it changes the way we see things because we don't just see things from the center of ourselves. Now we see them from the center of a play which includes everything. So we begin to see how people relate to each other. That's a very different way of seeing. It's like seeing the way God does because he's completely outside of an action watching everything go on and as God trying to help bring a problem to its resolution, to bring good out of evil. Homer did that, Virgil did it, Dante did it, Shakespeare's doing it. Is that clear? Because that to me is amazing. We very, we very often stand in the world and so often we're overwhelmed by the disorders we experience, our own, those of people around us, yeah. How often do we see God working something out? in a whole community. Remember, that's, that's why it's so important in, in the world in which we've entered to get beyond the family. Because what every poet is showing us is that there's a larger community that contains even the family and that something is going on to help bring these disorders for a whole community to a resolution, a new founding, a new order. Yeah? Is, does any Shakespeare play end with just a disaster? Does any play that Shakespeare writes end without justice being achieved? No. How does that happen? There has to be some ordering principle there because Shakespeare never leaves us. I mean, let, let's say Hamlet, let's say the play Hamlet stopped in the third or the fourth act. Would it be as complete a play? Would all the problems have been answered? Why does Shakespeare answer in them? Because he's showing us there's something larger at work always bringing good out of evil for an entire community. So poetry places us in a world to help us see that more is going on. According to our faith, it would be beyond even our families that God is at work always with a larger, the Iliad, a whole people, the Odyssey, a whole people, the Aeneid, a whole people, Dante, a universal people. <laughs> Is this clear? Am I, do you have any questions? Are you, so poetry teaches us to see inner and outer worlds. It helps us enter into another person, Othello. You know those speeches, I went over them. I mean, we entered into this extraordinary person, the things he said. And I asked that question, how could somebody who's rude of speech speak words like that? Because there's no way that man could have spoken them. What Shakespeare's doing is showing us this nobility. It makes me wonder, I've said this before, sometimes when we look at you know, a crook, a gangster, or is somebody who's Islamic, or we look at some full of tattoos, I mean, whatever indecent, or, you know, we look at people like that and we're so ready to write them off. Does God do that? No. I mean, it's just, it's a serious question how, in my mind, how he looks at people like that. They're his children. He, he, I'm going to come to this really in a, <laughs> to go back to the statement I made a while ago. He made them all in his image. He made all of us. If we take that seriously, and by the way, this is very much against the Protestant reading of things. I'm going to come to that in a minute. He made every one of us good in his image. If that's true, it means there's something very noble in a soul even if his conditions 
that produced him, his environment, his family, his city, even if they helped turn them bad. Is that essential good completely ruined? Partly saved? You know, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's too abstract for me. But in terms of Othello and his words at the end, it should raise a question. How do we read this man at the end? Is something of his nobility left or is he completely ruined? I mean, how, is Christ there or not? Same thing with Hamlet. Is Christ there or not? How do we see this? Because he's showing us these inordinate difficulties placed on this man. He has a private revelation. It absolutely isolates him from everybody. He lives under a totalitarian regime. And I'm trusting everybody feels how totalitarian our regime is. I mean, I, I, be, I want to be careful because I'm not sure that I'm speaking for everybody. But when I just look at the news problem in our, how, how the news tends to be an arm of the government that we, we so often get these reports of misreporting, of creating this whole narrative that, that a whole people has, has been learned to see things in a certain way. That's a totalitarian aspect. I keep saying to Suzanne, it, I, when I say this truthfully, I mean, I agree with it. It reminds me of Henry VIII's England. I feel like we're living back in that world. Um, and how, how much it isolates a Catholic or a Protestant even. <coughs> The, the, our religious beliefs are so out of tune with a secular world. So this question of nobility and how we read goes right to the heart of what he's doing. Okay. Now let me get to this here. Last time I talked about genres and poets. So does anybody have any question about poetry in the way that I'm presenting it here? The, one of the things a great poet is... It's, remember the, the Plato's Platonic Cave, right? Plato's Cave, <clears throat> here. In some ways, the poetry they've been reading has always been teaching us to come here, outside the cave, so that we can stand in a position of seeing more clearly, of questioning everything that goes on here. Because we know people in the cave are there because they don't question. They've got all the answers. They think they understand everything. Yeah? The poet has been taking us here to see a whole world from the outside. Shakespeare's doing that here, right? We stand in and we're not just completely in Hamlet's mind, right? We can go in his mind, out of mind, see what Claudius is doing. And so the poet is the one who, who, who has a transcendent position who can both enter into a person to help us take, take ourselves into it, Othello, we get inside Hamlet's consciousness but also see the larger world in which that's happening. So it changes the way we see. Is that clear? No? Don, you got a question. No. Is it no? No, no question. Okay. No. Okay. I, I guess the only, the only comment I would have, Bob, is uh, as far as our country and totalitarianism, it wasn't always that way. Oh, yes, I agree. You know, uh, shortly after the American Revolution, and de Tocqueville visited for several months, his comment about the country was it was wonderful because it was based on belief in God. And we've lost that. Yeah. And a lot of other things, too. De Tocqueville's critique is a critique everybody should read because there are things about, there are things about the American polity that he saw because he was an outsider. You know, I mean, amazing insights running through that whole book. That, um, 
about the dangers that the majority, I mean, there's so much to learn from that critique. Um, but I agree, I just think we were much healthier 250 years ago than we are today. But here, genre. Remember last time I gave you this genre bill? Lyric, remember, is, is the, the genre that deals principally with the interior of the poet, the subjectivity, the I am. So it's, it's, its closest ties are to I am that am. In the lyric, we enter into the inner soul to look at those things that for most of us are obscure, we don't see very well. How many of us can very art clearly articulate our emotions? Emotions are always obscure. I think women tend to be better at it than men. Men try to shy away from it. But, but I would say even women are good at it. Um, it's hard to get clear about emotions because emotions are so obscure, so dense, so deep, so mixed up. The poet is the one who helps us enter into the, that inner world, what we call the imminent, its interior, it's the interior emotions, not transcendent, but imminent, inward, and reveals that world. My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun coral. We learn the poet's feelings for the beloved. And if that isn't clear, take a Petrarch poem. I gave you those in my handout last time. Take a Petrarch poem and set it next to Shakespeare and look at his emotions. They are all over the place, um, excessive. You know, um, put the two next to each other and you can't, you can't miss the emotional, the difference between the emotions in the poets. We learn to enter in and we, we see that a kind of knowledge by emotion that the poet loves something in a certain way and that love goes out to the beloved, to God. The Psalms are all about the beloved David for his God, for Yahweh. The love he feels, the guilt he feels, the, you know. The lyric gives us the interior emotion, the topos, the, 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 the place is the garden. The lyric tends to take place in the garden. It's, it's ontological origins, if we can call it that, are Eden. It's that place where man loves, where his initial impulse is to love. Um, and remember I talked about the phases of it. It begins with anticipation, goes on to consummation, and ends with lamentation. From um, eagerly looking forward to being with God, the beloved, consummating that relationship, losing it. So the lyric covers the whole range of our emotional life. It moves towards the fall and we enter into the world of tragedy, the loss of the garden. And remember I said that tragedy always deals with individual responsibility. This, this hero carries a great burden, some disorder, and it's through what he does that a, that a people recovers its original ties to God. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Othello, Hamlet. Um, 
you can look forward to modern literature. I'll wait on that. But comedy, remember, was I told you was the um, one aspect of drama. There's the tragic and comic sides of drama. The comedy is a world of um, of enduring, hoping, suffering. Because once you've lost this world, um, you're, you're either overcome by the burdens of it, you enter into the abyss, the dark abyss, Achilles alone, Odysseus alone on his voyages, Aeneas alone, and particularly in the underworld, Dante, well, he's with Virgil, that's, I have to get to that, but Othello, isolated by what Yahweh does with him, Hamlet, absolutely isolated. Comedy is a world of enduring, a world of hope. The, the garden has been lost. There's a struggle to get back to it. I, I described um, comedy as waiting for the bus or forgetting the keys in the car and then bringing the keys back and still forgetting the car or however that, however that unfolded. Epic is always about a battle. It picks up the loss of the garden. Some disorder has entered into a people, and a whole people becomes an America is in the midst of an epic battle right now, as far as I'm concerned. An awful, horrible, spiritual battle. I'm going to say for our souls that, that America has so lost its way. And, and the divisions right now between us, when I listen to the news, uh, I go back and forth between Fox and, let's say, CNN. God, it's like getting... Black and white. I mean, the, the views are so radically... I, I went on the news yesterday, and, and I went to... When I was at the gym, I tend to stay with Fox, but I check it out every once in a while with CNN. I went to Fox, and it said, Trump will meet with the survivors of the Ohio State attack, whatever happened at the university. I didn't follow it up, but the, the headline was, Trump will meet with survivors, CNN. The one survivor refused to meet with Trump. <laughs> They, they took a good and made it bad. They could only see something bad to it. They, they could only have, whatever good was going on, got no news. I mean, the difference couldn't be more radical. It's black and white. So the division in our country right now, I'd say, is serious. The, the epic battle is always fought for a new founding. And you all know from the epics, because we've read them, that every epic moves towards um, a new order. A new order of honor, the kleos. Remember, nostos, the home. Pietas, piety and love. The, the humility that Aeneas had for the gods, to follow the gods' will. Um, and so it moves back towards the garden. So if you take a little circle, it goes from the garden to the new Jerusalem, to the new city. So that what we find in all, all, all genres is a complete rendering of the human condition in its origins, its movement, and its end, where it's all going. And so it, it, every, all of this should be implied here, 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 so that even if we're in a lyric, you know, Shakespeare's poem, it still implies something more, this whole. Now, tragedy. This is where I want to, this is where I want to focus for a second. Aristotle says that the plot is the soul of tragedy. The plot, remember, is a series of incidences. This, this, this happens, this happens, with every work. Um, 
what's the prophet's name in uh, crises, Chryseus. Chryseus brings a ransom for his daughter. Agamemnon refuses it. Agamemnon and Achilles quarrel. Whatever it is, you know, in Othello, the plot is different. But he said that the plot, this plot, all these incidents, is an imitation of an action. That what we see is an imitation of something we don't see, this action. It's a, it's a movement of spirit. So that in the Iliad, we saw Achilles change inwardly. We know it because in Book 9, he says, such, such booty, such honor is the thing I need not. Remember when he refuses the ransom? And Book 17, 16, 17, 18, he says, I let everybody down. He's not the same man that started that. He's changed inwardly. D does Homer show it? No, he has no way to go into that world then. That waits on Christ. After Christ, we learn to go into the inside, and we know from Paul's letters and from Christ, what happens on the inside of us is far more important than what happens on the outside. So every plot helps reveal this inner world, this inner movement. Okay? Now, the tragedy, every tragedy, every tragedy is a movement from good fortune to bad fortune. Every comedy is a movement from bad fortune to good. Yeah? Say that again. Every tragedy consists of a movement, an action, from good fortune to bad fortune. Every comedy is a movement from bad fortune to good. So they're opposite of each other. They're mere opposites. We can learn a lot about each of them from the other. Um, Odysseus loses his way at home, and all the, all the homes, remember in Ithaca, Sparta, Pylos, they're all going to hell. There's something wrong with them all. What happens at the end um, brings him home, and he recovers his relationship with his wife, and something actually new happens. Dante, um, Merchant of Venice, it looks like Antonio's going to be killed. Portia comes and saves him. Okay. So in comedy, something happens, very often something we can't account for, the unexpected, the miraculous. Um, something happens to, to turn an action, to, to reverse it. So we find the same thing in both of them. In tragedy, we're always dealing with a noble-souled individual. A noble-souled individual. It's his very nobility the fact that he carries something on that other men don't carry that becomes the means for changing a disorder for a whole people. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante, Othello, Hamlet. It's absolutely important to see that the person is noble because if we lose that, we don't see the tragic effect properly. There are three qualities to a tragedy. For every great tragedy, Aristotle said, he said one is that every tragedy has at its center a peripatia, a turn, peripatia, from the Greek, a turn, an anagnorisis, anagnorisis, a recognition, a scene. And at the moment of this turn, a catharsis takes place. 
a purging. And it, it purges the tragic emotions. Pity and fear. So that this is the crucial point. Every tragedy is an affirmation of the role of reason in our life. Right, not just wrong reason, because wrong reason is partly behind the disorders. Right reason. The human person is cleansed. The audience is cleansed. We, we go through a catharsis. And we come out of it seeing more clearly freed. Now remember, <laughs> what was the great, what emotion was the great threat to Dante through the whole of his journey? Right. The emotion. Pity. Pity. You remember how often he's done. When he first enters hell, he feels sorry for Francisca. He faints. Faints again. He's over. Remember, we talked about this. That he, the, pity is a great, great danger to human beings. Because pity can be arresting. We can get caught in it. It's paralyzing. We feel so sorry. Remember, the difference between pity and love is really real here. Really important. Pity is the... Is the Emotional identification we feel with another with whom we identify. Somebody suffers something, we pity. Right? But pity is also an emotion that can arrest us. It's a natural emotion, it's a good emotion. But it can also be arresting, paralyzing. The difference between pity and love is what? Pity is an emotion that we feel in our identification with the suffering of another. Love is putting the self away for the good of another. The self is very much always involved with pity. In some way in which we do it for ourselves because we identify with that. The danger with it is it can paralyze us, just like fear, right? I mean, we all know paralyzing moments when we're so frightened of something we freeze up. Aristotle says that in the tragic, in the tragic movement, a catharsis takes place here that's freeing. Now watch what happens. <coughs> The tragic effect, the catharsis, depends on the nobility of the person. Because it's only because something really great is lost that we feel the tragic emotion. Minimize it. Make it just some ordinary person here who does nothing. Would we feel the tragic emotion as much? We're not going to feel it. If we watch somebody as, as noble as, as Othello get worked on, as we watch that happen, don't we feel pity and fear? I mean. What's I mean, I remember reading it this time and thinking, God, what, what Shakespeare does to create suspense is amazing. You watch Iago work on when, when and finally say at that point when Othello says, um, I'm not going to do this anymore. Prove it to me or I'm going to kill you. And we wait, what's he going to do next? Will he get free or not? And he doesn't. I mean, Iago answers that. What Shakespeare's showing us is evil is far greater than we know. The great, remember, the great danger in Venetians is they're too cavalier. They're too innocent. They don't take seriously enough the place of evil in the world. They're not on guard enough. They're too trusting. So the tragic emotion depends on a nobility. Take that away and we're not going to feel the effects as much. So anything we do to minimize the nobility of the character will shrink our feelings. We'll feel less. So that nobility is absolutely crucial. The question is what happens at the end? Now look, here's one, I mean, why I'm taking this time with genre is because two, two reasons. One is we have lost a tragic sense in our world. 
I hope that's clear. Who's writing good tragedy in the last 200 years? Since Shakespeare. Why? I'm going to say for, for two reasons, and this is going to go back to my argument, what I said a while ago that may have sounded outlandish or insane or whatever you want to make of it. Um, two things. Um, remember that question I put to everybody? We can't really know ourselves unless we know our beginnings. One of the first questions that we can ever ask ourselves are, are our beginnings high or low? What are our beginnings? In the ancient world, were our beginnings high or low? We've gone over this. Our beginnings high or low? Wow. Why, Shiz? What's your intuition? <laughs> Why are they high? They are high. Why? Because we're descendants of the gods. In the modern world, are beginnings high or low? Well, what's our origins according to Darwin or... Amoebas. Hmm? Yeah, a black hole and apes. Went further down. Oh, really? Isn't that true? What does that do to our image of ourselves? I mean, how close does that come to Yahweh creating man in his image? I'm being really serious now. This is not small stuff for me. Our image of ourselves in the modern world is horrible. We don't have it. We lack a tragic view because we've lost a sense of our nobility. It's like we've been put to sleep with drugs. That we want to make everything okay and we're satisfied with this low image of ourselves. Think what it does to us psychically. God. It's just horrifying. Um, our, the, the beginnings for the modern world are low. If your beginnings are low, how easy will it to be to write tragedy. If we don't have any nobility, what's there to lose? So when we read a tragedy, how often do we project back into it a low reading of our human nature? I mean, how well do we read it today? <clears throat> That's one. Two, if you add into that the Protestant Reformation view of our nature, what does it do? What's the Protestant view of our nature? According to the Protestant view, Calvin and Luther, I mean, the, the principal figures in that, that reform movement, is that man's depraved. In essence, in essence, he's depraved. Now this is really, hold on to that word, in essence. Just hold on to that for a moment. We're depraved in essence. Add that to the scientific view. What happens? God, it gets worse and worse. By the way, we're not even close yet. <laughs> There's one more step for me to take. This is shocking. I mean, it just, this is what I mean about our mind being diseased. And because I really believe the modern Catholic is has been Protestantized in his way of looking, his view is. Um, so, um, the Protestant view is that man is depraved in essence. The fall was complete. The, the consequences of the fall for the Protestant was complete ruin. Man can only be saved by Christ. There's no good otherwise. And you remember Dante answered that. I mean, he wasn't, I mean, he, he wasn't anticipating the Reformation, but remember, Aristotle and Plato and all the rest were virtuous pagans. They were in hell because virtue by itself can't merit heaven. But he's very clear that man still has a goodness in him. He's, in, he's innately good because he was made in God's image. It's that he just can't get to heaven. So in the Catholic mind, our essence is protected. 
Our belief is we were wounded, not destroyed in essence. That's a very different view of man. Yeah? The last one. The last one. According to St. Thomas, according to St. Thomas, the natural object of the intellect is being. I am the them. It's God everywhere in nature. Is that true for Hopkins? Absolutely. He looks in nature and what does he find? In a bird, in a fire. Right? We've been doing this. If you look at Spring or some of the other of Hopkins' poems, he, he finds God everywhere. Why? Is he making it up as a poet? No, because he's much healthier. As a scholastic, he knows. The natural object of the human mind, the intellect, is the goodness of things, being. The, what's the natural object of our senses? Things in front of us. What the mind grasps through what our senses give to us? Um, any of us that we know, Bev, her wonderful cookies. <laughs> what Suzanne said a while ago that was so right on, I think. You know, that, that there's this goodness we're meant to see. Our senses show us individual things. Our minds grasp the essences of things. What's the essence of man for a Protestant? Depravity. Yeah? Now add Freud to this. What's the nature of man according to Freud? Polymorphous perverse. Does Freud see anything of the goodness of man's essence? He doesn't come close. What he sees are all the depravities, the perversity, the, the Oedipal, the Electra, sleeping with a mother, wanting to kill the father. Those are... So, so stop and think about this. For Thomas, for the medieval mind, for Shakespeare still, the natural object of the mind was good. Yeah? Which meant it would be more easy to love because you, you were aware that you lived in a world that was filled with good. What happens in the modern mind? The object of the modern mind is no longer being, it's constructs of our own mind. Descartes, Kant. What we know are our own ideas. What are the ideas of the modern mind? Generally perverse. I.e., what's the effect on the modern mind? It's, it has become diseased. That must be a, a high low for this class. <laughs> <laughs> Let me stop. I know that's a... Is that, is that all clear? I want to get to Hamlet because Hamlet's going to show all this in a second. But are you all following what I'm saying? And it's, it's altered our way of reading tragedy. If you, if you read the psychologists reading tragedy, they, they're finding edible. You know, Hamlet wants to sleep with his mom and kill his dad. And I mean, it's just all sorts of variations. We don't get to being to the goodness of things. We're living in a world in which the mind, and this is crucial, in which the mind tends to shrink things down to bad. The great exemplar in our work, this is on that Athena sheet. Iago, O gentle lady, don't, you don't have to pick it up. Do not put me to it, for I am nothing if I'm not critical. Does, does Iago see good in anybody? Does he love anything? 
How can he when all he sees is evil? And the other one, remember when, when he starts insinuating things into Othello's mind? I do beseech you, though I perchance am vicious in my guess, as I confess, it is my nature's plague to spy into abuses. What's the nature of the modern mind? To find fault everywhere, to tear down, to find fault. Iago, I am not that I am. He's the anti-Yahweh, the anti-God. He finds fault everywhere. He, he makes things less than they are. My contention here is if, if we're not careful, it's why I'm trying to protect Othello or, or proportion when I did that. If we don't learn to see the good in other people the way God does, are we loving the way he does? Or are we loving the way he asked to, to find Christ in others, particularly in their brokenness? I remember I, I argued with this fundamentalist friend of mine forever. He, he can't see an Islam without seeing Satan. I believe Islam is anti-Christ. I, be, I believe that personally. But I believe that really deeply as a philosophy. John says those who deny Christ, are that's the opening of the John's Gospel. And, and the, is, is the, Islam denies Christ, his divinity. But if people grow up in that religion and they've been taught to believe that and nothing else, or a Protestant has been raised in this world to be taught, or Catholics have been raised a certain way, and that's the way they, are they always loving God the way God asks? Or, you know, we, we've got our, our human condition to deal with it. It's really important how we look at people, what we see. Are we learning to see the way God is asking us, the way he sees it? Christ on the cross, forgive them for what they did. This night, oh God. Sorry. This night you'll be with me in paradise. He's a thief on a cross. How do most of the people look at that thief? A thief. Christ says, tonight you'll be with me. So, this thing about reading, and particularly reading tragedy, is really important because we've lost a tragic view of our life. Everything's dumbed down. It's reductive. It's shrinking. Um, poetry is prophetic in one way, in the sense that it helps us to see things more clearly, to feel things in a different way. Um, so let me stop there. So any questions about the tragic paradigm and, and what we're reading, why it's, learn, why it's important to learn to see that something else is going on tragedy that we've lost a sense of. Any, is this clear? And what we're struggling with in our country today in America is a, an epic battle I really believe that we're in the midst of. Debbie, come on. Comment before was, and I think that that's correct, is that 200 years ago, America was a place. Healthier people, yes. for sure, yes. And God-loving and God-fearing and, and, yes. and all of that. Yeah. And this transformation to where we are now is, is, it, is it that this Protestantism of that man is basically bad. Um, it, I mean, obviously, 200 years ago, if that was their philosophy, that was their philosophy. And it, it seems that that has been put on hyperdrive, that men are basically evil, and, and that 
protect me, I'm going to, I, ha I can't have any kind of relationship with you. I can't have, I don't trust you, I don't love you, I don't, I don't care about you. So it's all me-centered. It's about me. And I think, I think that that's, that happened to me, where I saw that was in the 60s and the 70s, is where our country became all about me and centered on what's in it for me. So is that just a product of, of I'm trying to figure out what Debbie, what let me let me, yeah, let me just let me and I want to because I don't want I want to get back to the play and because yeah. the larger issues are just so large but but in, a quick answer to that is I just tried to lay out what I what I believe are the three causes but let me just identify them one is a scientific view of looking at things because the scientific view tended to encourage man a habit of abstract of abstracting from the world by quantity so instead of seeing being as the natural object of the mind, what the mathematical scientific mind tends to do is live in a, in a world of abstractions removed from the concrete world. It's a world of abstractions in terms of quantity and mathematics. Okay. So typically the, the, the scientific mind does not get to being. It denies it. It doesn't see it. It sees in quantifiable abstractions. The other is the Protestant view with its, its belief that man's depraved, essentially. And the third is the um, idealist tradition in, in philosophy. Descartes, Kant moving forward to Hegel and Heidegger and the others. That in that, in that philosophy, we're, the basic belief of that is that what we know are our own ideas. That we don't know things. Our mind separates us. What's outside of our minds is a non-mental world, and it's different in essence from what's in our minds. What we know are ideas that are projected on the world. So it's a combination of a lot of things in the way they intermix um, that's produced our condition. It's one of the reasons I'm, I'm so adamant about trying to put this out, that there are these very basic disorders to the modern mind in the way. It does not look at, you know, if you go back at the, the lyrics that I've been reading, all of them, you see a love, and you not only see and feel a love, but you see the object of the mind and the love that is awakened in whatever that thing is, a bird, the four-year-old girl, you know, that whatever, you, whatever we've read, that you're seeing um, something very different from what the modern poet, so many modern poets would see. Because what I, I mean, the reason my, for choosing that, this is, I mean, in one sense, this is a catechetical for me, for us. It's to try to find Christ, the Logos, in the world, to help understand what's in the way of that. You know, we've been in an ancient world. We just stepped into the modern world together, and right now what we're going to do is deal with, <laughs> in a very focused way, on modern problems. I mean, we're seeing here, we saw... Merchant of Venice, we saw Othello, now we're looking at Hamlet. You know, and we'll go on to Melville and... Uh, I'm looking forward to Melville because Don has volunteered to give a class on the Cytology chapter. <laughs> He's going to have hard things to say to me. <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> Here, can I stop? I, I want to go back to Hamlet. Okay. Can we? Um, good. I, God. 
I'm out of breath. That was too hard. That was a lot. Any questions on that? I, that was a lot, but it's, it's all so basic to reading tragedy. We don't know tragedy, what tragedy is, and we don't have a sense of it. We, there's so much we can miss, so... Any questions briefly? The do the, the play or genre, you know, not these... <coughs> by, the, by the way, the other thing that I, you know, in answer to you, what I really believe, I really believe this is a time for saints. That this battle is really dark it's in some way. Well, I mean, you know, think about how dark it was for the revolutionary generation. They had to go to war and die because they were dealing with what they thought was anti-human in a form of government. It meant enough for them to die. They had something to die for. Is, is what people who go to battle today for worth dying for? Do they have a... I mean, we're in a real spiritual battle. So, the, I mean, one answer to your question is knowing the causes is good, but is that going to be enough to put on your armor and go out and fight and die for God? I mean, we're still called to do that, whatever our age. So I believe we're in the midst of a horrible spiritual battle, and I really believe the church has called us out. We're to get out of our pews. We've got to fight. We've been called to holiness. We should be out answering this. Um, anyway, let's... Let's go back to <laughs> That wore me out. I'm getting too old. I'm getting too old for this. God. Okay. Um, I want to just look at a couple of things today. Let me very quickly just summarize from Act 1 to Act 3. Um, the play opens, I've mentioned this before, the play opens with that question by Bernardo, who's there? And I've talked about the importance of that. What I didn't mention, I think, before is this. Who's on guard? Is it Bernardo or Francisco? It's Francisco who's on guard. So not only does the opening begin with a question that seems to me the question for the modern world, who's there? Do we really see, do we really see what's going on in the person in front of us? Do we really see Othello, the depths of that struggle? Do we really see the depths of what's going on in Hamlet? Because what they suffer is extraordinary. Imagine having a private revelation and, have, and being asked to kill your uncle what the effect of that would be in your family relationships or your community or your sense of politics. So the opening immediately puts us into this modern disorder. Who's there? Do we really see people for who they are? And the play is going to show nobody sees Hamlet. The closest one is Horatio, and even Horatio doesn't understand everything that we do. So we're in the same position. Remember I told you this? We're in the same position as, as readers of Homer. Remember I put this question to you. If the Iliad is about a founding, a refounding, how many people in the Iliad, how many soldiers, how many Achaeans actually saw the significance of that battle? Diomedes? Agamemnon? None of them. Who did? The only one that did was the poet. And I'm going to argue, how many teachers see that today? And I'm going to say, 
the number is infinitely small. How many people read the Iliad well? It's a negligible number. How many of them see the prophetic nature? Very, very, very few. How many people in, the, in Hamlet see Hamlet for what's really going on? Do we really see the struggles each of us bears? How well do we see? How, and, and Shakespeare would argue, you can never see well unless you love. Because love by its nature is unitive. It takes you into the other. And we all know the pain of that. Loving another is one of the things that makes us want to run away from each other because it's full of wounds. Um, but the other interesting thing about the opening is it's backwards. Bernardo, who's there? Francisco, nay, answer me, standing in full. It's backwards. Francisco should be asking who's there. He's the one on guard. So things are upside down right at the beginning. Remember I told you, read the opening lines closely because here, this question of Shakespeare's technique. Um, one of the interesting things that he does here, it's this, this thing I came to here, Shakespeare's technique. One of the interesting things that he does here is, is that deliberately, consciously as a book, he locates us in the cave. How many of us read those opening lines and thought anything about them? I would say no. The first time I read them, they didn't mean anything to me. I don't know how many readings it took before I finally, you know, just kept gradually seeing more and more. Um, here's another interesting fact, I mean, along these lines. When do we learn about the ghost revelation? Before or after Claudius's State of the Union? Test next week. <laughs> Quiz next week. Come on, you guys. Yeah, next week. <laughs> <laughs> Do we learn about the ghost revelation before that State of the Union or after? It's after. Why? Why? This may sound like a you know, construction, how does a poet construct this, but why? It's not just a technical question, why? Do we learn that Polonius puts Rinaldo on his son to spy on him before he tells his son or after? After. He sends his son off to France, to the University of Paris, and says, to thy own self be true. He has all these moral things. He says as a father, he's saying all the things a stupid father says, do this, do this, do this, do this. And two scenes later, we see him talking with Ronaldo, telling Ronaldo to go spy on him. Why does Shakespeare do that? Why do we not get the revelation until after the State of the Union? Because every one of those scenes becomes a revelation for us of what we didn't see. When we get that State of the Union, I read some of it last time, didn't I? When he, when he says, for all our thanks. Remember? I don't think you did. No. I'm almost sure. It, no, are you kidding me? I think... No, I think I did it. Well, here, turn to Act 1, Scene 1, or Act 1, Scene 2. The, this is where Claudius gives his State of the Union. So, the, in the opening act, we learn from the guards that a ghost has been visiting, that all these preparations for war are being made. Something's wrong. There's this haunting, eerie feeling 
that something's out of place. A ghost has been appearing, first of all, which means something strange is happening. And then we get Act 1, Scene 2, where the king delivers the State of the Union. He's just married Gertrude. The old king is dead. And he says, Though yet of Hamlet our dear brother's death the memory be green, and that it's befitted to bear our hearts in grief, and our whole kingdom be contracted in one brow of row, yet so far with discretion fought with nature, that we with wisest sorrow think on him together with remember. That is, we're grieving for our lost king, but we have to think of ourselves and move on. He's seen, he's saying everything a shrewd king would say. Therefore, our sometime sister, our now queen, the, the imperial jointress to this warlike state, have we, as it were, with defeated joy, with an auspicious and dropping eye, with mirth in funeral, and with dirge in marriage. See how he's combining opposites? Is everybody clearing that? He's combining opposites to help reconcile two different sentiments. Grief for the passing king, hopefulness looking ahead, because... As a, as a good leader, what would he do? He would acknowledge the past and try to encourage people to move on. Yeah? But then he says, in equal scale, Wayne, delight with dole, taken to wife. Now I've done all this to help us move forward, nor have we herein barred your better wisdoms which have freely gone with this affair along for all our things. Now hold on to that last set of lines. But just at this moment, what's our impression of this king? Pretty good. Hmm? Favorable. Yeah. Absolutely. This guy is a state, I mean, verbally at least, he seems to be, he's doing everything he should do to recognize something that has to be recognized and honored and still move forward. So he's very capable with language. Think about recent. I better stop. <laughs> very capable with language. Very capable with language. And, 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 and his ability to put opposites together, to, to seem to resolve contradictions. Okay? What are we going to learn in two scenes? He killed his brother. Now, why, yeah, why does Shakespeare do this? He's giving an appearance first. Yeah. And then showing what you can't, what you missed. You've got an A on your quiz, Tom. <laughs> Isn't it? He does this again. Homer does it. We talked about in the in the sixth book of the Iliad, who looks better, Achilles or Hector? Hector's just gone home and spoke those amazing words to his wife. Achilles just walked away from the battle. Who looks better in the beginning of that book? Who do most modern critics favor, Achilles or Hector? Hector. Shakespeare learned from masters. He's showing us of the world as it appears to us to show us how often we're taken in. Yeah? Okay, now let's see, let's see if you're learning. Now, he just said what he said. Nor have we herein barred your better wisdoms which have freely gone with this affair along for all our thanks. What's the meaning of that politically in terms of particularly in light of what Tom just said. What is he doing with that line? Oh, I was here the Monday before. Where you wait then, that. wait. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. You said wait. No, oh, no. You're a good listener. <laughs> your better, which, which line, read the line, your better wisdom. <sighs> Nor have we here in Bard your better wisdoms which have freely gone with this affair long for all our thanks. 
Fort and Gross is gathering arms, presumably to come and recover the lands that old Hamlet had taken. So it looks like there's a war coming. As a statesman, he's doing what he's going to send an embassy to Fort and Gross to settle that problem. He will eventually. Mm -hmm. Nor have we here in Barger better wisdom, which have freely gone with this. If he's following their advice and something bad turns up, what can he say? He tried. Say it, Debbie. Well, what I, I, he tried and, and it didn't work. If I follow your advice and it's wrong, it's your fault. fault. Whose fault? It's your fault. <coughs> your fault. You, you in that line, he's implicating everybody there. And we don't even know that he isn't, I mean, that somebody wasn't included. We don't know. But let's assume there wasn't. It, still, what he's doing is implicating him, implicating everybody there in whatever is going to fall out. Because in some sense, he's following their advice and thanking them for it. This king, this, by the way, Shakespeare knew Machiavelli. And I'm, I don't know how where you guys are, but I really believe the modern world is Machiavellian in politics. The ends justify them. I mean, people are expendable for a political good. They really are expendable. You can justify the way you use people because in your mind, particularly if you've got an ideology, and I'm going to say the whole liberal left is an ideological world. It lives in ideas. It puts ideas in your mind. I mean, it's working on, it's not really dealing with what's there. It's got systems in the head. So it's easier to justify um, treating people as objects to move to an end. So Shakespeare's aware of Machiavelli. I mean, this is a master Machiavellian ruler. Already we see this in the beginning, okay? Let me just quickly, I want to just turn to two things because we've got a, I'm going I'm to make it by 11, even though it means it's going to shortchange everybody. I'm going to get, Fran's looking at me skeptically. <laughs> Keep those two women away from each other. God. Here, turn to, um, turn, um, you know the ghost scene, the ghost reveals what happened, that his brother killed him, poisoned him, and Hamlet said, Hamlet's words, oh my prophetic soul. That's so He had some sense that something was wrong as a kid, oh, that he sensed it, and now it turns out that in fact his intuitions were right. The ghost tells him, um, Act 2 begins with Claudius bringing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern into the kingdom and putting them on Hamlet. Um, act 2, scene 2, Polonius says about line 130, um, he's just received news from the embassy from Norway that they want passage through Denmark. And that Fortinbras, the young Fortinbras, will not go to war to recover his lands. The old man made him promise not to carry through that. So they're going to give young Fortinbras passage through Denmark to carry on his wars with another country. After that, the king says about line 130 to Polonius, What do you think of me? Or, or Polonius says, 
what do you think of me, king, as of a man faithful and honorable? Now look over on Act 2, Scene 2, Line 42. Because the king and Polonius just had this exchange, and the king says, how good you've been. And Polonius says, have I, my lord, assure you, my good liege, I hold my duty as I hold my soul, both to my God and to my gracious king. He does not put God above his king. He gives the same allegiance to the state that he gives to God. That's one of the reasons for the totalitarian powers, because if you give the state that kind of power, you give it absolute powers. What's his attitude towards his daughter? Now think about this. This is amazing. As a father, he, he gives allegiance to the state, absolutely, as to God. So the state defines everything he does. Every time Ophelia comes to him, he says, stay away from Hamlet, because Hamlet's only looking out for himself. He will just use you. She says, um, um, earlier, she talks about her affections. Um, uh, and his word is affections. Who? Those are exact words, I think. He has no heart for his daughter. He looks at the world cynically because the state is absolute in his mind. He has no other way to treat his children than he does. He poopaws her, he has no place in his heart for his daughter, and he sends a spy on his son. So he's an image of the controlling behavior that everybody takes on themselves in a totalitarian world. Okay? Now, he just, he just said that to his um, king, I hold my duties, I hold my soul, now the king asks, what's going on with Hamlet? He seems to be mad, and it, it unnerves Claudius because he doesn't know what to make of it, and the fact that he doesn't know makes him nervous because he wants to have control over everything. Remember, this is a totalitarian world, which means you control everything. <clears throat> on, in about line 150, Polonius, um, um, had there been such a time, I would fain know that, that, it, that I have positively said to so when it's proven other. He's questioning what's going on. He thinks Hamlet's mad because he's in love with Ophelia. So nobody's reading anybody well. I hope that's clear. Everybody. Nobody can, can answer that question, who's there? Nobody in this play. Polonius says to his king, about line 150, Take this from this, if this be otherwise, if circumstance lead me, I will find where truth is hid, though it were hid indeed within the center. What a presumptuous belief. By the way, this whole thing is against, in some sense, modern psychology, and it's belief that it can get to the center of a soul. Polonius is going to claim this, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, his friends, are going to claim it, that they can get to the center of Hamlet's soul. Um, I just want to end with um, a couple of readings, and then we'll pick up with Act 3. But turn to... Um, it's almost 11. Uh, 183. Act, well, Act 1, Scene 5. Wait, I'm sorry. Act 1, Scene 5. Wait. No, I'm sorry. Act, Act, sorry. Act 1, Scene 2. Sorry. Act 1, Scene 2. Act 1, scene 2, line 129. 
The king has just given his state of address. Hamlet appears. He wants to go back to Wittenberg. And this is just stunning. Claudius says, stay here. Why? Because this is the prince heir. He's got to get control of this kid because he's just killed his father. I mean, this is a must. And he says to Hamlet about line 92, but to persevere in obstinate condolences is a course of impious stubbornness. Stop holding on to your grief. Let it go, move on. See me as a father, and I will look after you as a father. They're incredible. This, this speech that he gives right here, a heart unfortified, a mind impatient, understanding, simple and unschooled. You're just being immature. Let go of your grief. Your dad's dead. Let's move on. Um, Fie, tis a fault to heaven, a fault... Just listen to his words. He's just killed the king. It's a fault to heaven, a fault against the dead, a fault to nature, to reason most absurd, whose common theme is death of fathers, and who, who still hath cried from the first course till he that died today. Thus must it be... It's gonna, people are going to die. Let it go. We pray you throw to earth this unprevailing woe and think of us as a father... I can't read those lines without cringing. He's giving all this, these, what do you call them, axiomatic saws or, you know, this proverbial wisdom. And he's, Iago doesn't come close to this. He's saying, treat me as a father. See me as a good man. Let this stuff go. You're, you're just being immature. He's just killed the king. So the interesting thing about the difference between Claudius and Iago is, um, Claudius has no conscience about lying and pretending to be the opposite of what he really is. So this guy's masterful. Claudius leaves and Hamlet says this, line 129, Oh, that this too sullied flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew, or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. He would kill himself. I mean, he's, his mother has just married. He's just lost his dad. The, the real sorrow for him, his mom's just married. I mean, he loved his father. Oh God, God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fie on it, oh fie. Tis an unweeded garden. This is one of the phrases we can add to Denmark. Denmark is a prison house. Hamlet calls that an unweeded garden. Something's rotten in the state of Denmark. Denmark is something's wrong in this I think a modern city, did you know that I'm presenting it? Tis an unweeded garden. What's the beginning of the lyric? The garden. This is an unweeded garden. Something's wrong. Things rank and gross in nature possess it merely, that it should come to this but two months dead, nay, not so much, not two, not exceed. So excellent a king that was to do this Hyperion, that was to this, Claudius, Hyperion to a satyr. His father was like the son to Claudius, a satyr. There's no comparison. He was a much nobler man. So loving to my mother that he might not between, between the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. Heaven and earth must I remember why she would have hung on him as if an increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on. As he looks back on his memory, he sees her very affectionate. Um, when he returned the affection, she just became more affectionate. And yet within a month, let me not think of frailty, thy name is woman, a little month. 
He goes on, O God, a beast that wants discourse of reason would have more and longer. Once again, like Othello, do you hear the nobility of the words? This is a poet speaking. Hamlet is saying things how many of us could say? Find words like this. He's showing us the nobility of a human being in absolute utter anguish. She married almost wicked speed to post with such dexterity to incestuous sheets. It is not mine, it cannot come to good, but break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. Um, quick, go on over. Um, when Rosencrantz and Guildenstern come, Hamlet asks them why they're there. He already knows that Polonius has put them on, and he admits that to them. This is Act 2, Scene 2, line 200, 290, line 290. He gets the, his friends to admit that Polonius has put them on him to spy on him. And then he says, Guildenstern um, says, My lord, we were sent for, line 290, Act 2, Scene 2, Hamlet. I will tell you why, so shall my anticipation prevent your discovery. He wants to protect them. He wants to help protect them. And your secrecy to the king and queen, molt no farther. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises indeed, it grows so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this, br this brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, He's giving this extraordinary, beautiful picture of the earth in the midst of this. Um, the most excellent canopy of the air, look you this brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. What a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express it admirable, in action how like an angel, in apprehension how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, they smile, as if there was something like homosexual, or nor woman neither, because they were wondering whether he would like a woman, you know, um, because he doesn't like men. Though by your smiling you seem to say so. So here we show him capable of seeing this great beauty to the world, to creation, and yet experiencing it as this foul pestilence. He's so. And one last thing, and then we'll we'll stop. So a couple of things. In the in the middle of the scene, Polonius is going to arrive. This is on about. Quickly turn to. Um, Um, oh God. Aplonius is going to arrive and he says to the men, he's coming. Line 393, Act 2, Scene 2, we're still there. Polonius arrives and Hamlet goes, O Jephthah, judge of Israel, what a treasury had though. Okay, this is where Shakespeare shows his gene. Jephthah, Jephthah is who? He was one of the judges in, it was judges or numbers, I think, who, who um, was an illegitimate son, but who was so strong that the Israelites asked him to help them defeat 
I think it was the Mamorites. He came in and defeated them and vowed to sacrifice the first thing that came out of his door when he arrived home. He returns home, the first thing out of his door was his daughter. His daughter. What has so Polonius been sacrificing? He has been, one of the reasons Hamlet is so furious at Ophelia is she has allowed her father to use her as he does. So, so this allusion to the Bible shows that Hamlet isn't one-dimensional, that he sees analogies, that what was taking place back in Judges is occurring now, that this is a man who has betrayed his daughter, sacrificed him. Does Polonius get it? No. But we're, we're seeing right now, he's going to make it clear, we're going to stop. I'm going to read the next passage and then we're going to stop. Hamlet is a swordsman. He knows his Bible and he knows classical literature. The players are going to arrive and when they arrive he says to the player, speak this speech from the Aeneid. And Hamlet quotes it verbatim, line 430. Take a look. He says, speak this speech. And by the way, his criticism of the drama is really, it's, it, it's the same critique that we would have of drama today. The drama's gone to hell. Um, but he says, line 436, "'Twas Aeneas's tale to Dido, and thereabout of it specially, where he speaks of Priam's slaughter. If it live in your memory, begin at this line." Now he's, he's, I mean, this is a man trying to recall it, because clearly it doesn't come easily, but he knows it. Um, begin at this line, let me see, let me see. The rugged Pyrus, like the um, Hyrcanian bee, "'Tis not so, he got it wrong." It begins with Pyrrhus, the rugged Pyrrhus, he whose sable arms, black as his purpose, did the night. Now, by the way, this is an English rewriting of Virgil, and you, you all know, I mean, you're, you're in this wonderful position because you've read all this now. This is Virgil with his poetry using language to, to, to show the greatness of this moment, even though it's Pyrrhus. Who is Pyrrhus? Achilles' son, and if you remember from the Aeneid, he was brutal. Achilles had a nobility to him. This, his son is a brutal, brutal kid. Black as his purpose did the knight resemble when he lay couched in an ominous horse. Remember all the Greeks were waiting to come out? Hath now this dread and black complexion smeared with heraldry more dismal? Head to foot now is he total gulls, horridly tricked with blood of fathers, mud, he's got blood all over him, daughters, sons, baked and impasted, right? Because the blood is drying on him. Baked and impasted with the parching streets, with all the mud and dust. So you can picture this, this figure grind over with blood. How, how horrible, grotesque it had to look. Baked and entrusted with the parching streets that led a tyrannous and damned light to their Lord's murder roasted in wrath and fire, and thus oresized with coagulative gourds, coagulating on him, with eyes like carbuncles, the hellish Pyrrhus old grandsire Priam seeks. Now he tells the, the player to proceed, and the player finishes the speech, and it shows in these this epic turbs, Pyrrhus killing old Priam. And he describes the old man as trying to wield a sword and finding it impossible because he's too old. He can't strike him because it's age. So we've got this picture of old Priam. Remember the last picture we had of Priam? Achilles and he weeping with each other. Does Shakespeare know this? Absolutely. 
This old man who we last saw in the Iliad, weeping with Achilles, trying to fight off Achilles' son and incapable of doing it. So the, the player finishes. Now why does Hamlet, why does Shakespeare do this? Because what did, ha what did Pyrrhus do, even, even as a killer? He killed a king. What has Hamlet got to do? So what's the, what's the problem this presents to Hamlet? Is he going to be brutal? Because he's learned to read, he's learned to see things in terms of what poetry has given him. Is he going to kill the king like Pyrrhus? Be a brutal man? You know that when we saw him at prayer, he looked at Priam at prayer and said, I want to catch this man damning, doing something damn, damnable. So we see a Renaissance man. He knows his Bible. He knows his literature. He is sensitive. He knows the difficulties he's facing. He knows that the ghost might be an evil spirit tempting him. And you know that he, he's intelligent enough, scientific, this is a modern world. He's got to test it out. What does he do? He makes up the mousetraps test play to test the king. When he sees the king's response, he knows the ghost was being truthful. So this is a very intelligent young man. He was the prince heir. He's lost his place. He has a sense that something's wrong. He's now discovered that his father was killed, that the king is the murderer. He has to find a way of doing something with it. But he carries behind him things like this, Pyrrhus killing old Priam. So when people talk about Hamlet as being unhinged or given to excessive madness, or I think we have to see he's an extraordinarily noble young man. He's extremely, he's a Renaissance figure. He can fight. He knows his Bible. He knows literature. And the private revelation has put him in a situation no other hero has ever been put in before, in, at least in my reading. On the basis of this private revelation, he's got to avenge his father's death. What does he do? So this is the problem this man is facing. And just to underscore this, Shakespeare doesn't judge. He never judges. Never. He never intrudes in. He lets the action take its place. So the play is the judge. We enter into the soul of what I'm going to call a Protestant experience. Not judging it. We're seeing exactly what it means for somebody to bear this sort of thing. So this takes us into the third act. This is um, what happens then. Is There's that to be or not to be, the suicide speech, and then... Um, everything that follows after that. But we'll finish Hamlet <coughs> next week. And that will almost bring our work to Shakespeare for an end to an end because we'll just have the one night for the dinner with Winter's Tale and one class night after that. So we're pretty much winding things up. So read, read the end of this. I, I think you'll enjoy it. He, this is an extraordinary person, what Shakespeare's done with Hamlet. You all have a good week. Sorry, in 15 minutes. <laughs> it did, make, did make it again. Email You're doing this yourself? No, 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 no. This is something I came from. So the entire campaign.
Since you weren't there, let me tell you, but one of the questions I raised at the end of the film was, how are we to understand that scene when she seems to die and then come back to life? And then she says, well, somebody said, I think it means that you do this. She says, nobody and myself commend me to my So, Traditionally, the, I mean, typically, the feminists are sure, but the, the conventional reading of that is that she's covering her own way wine to do sometimes because of abuse, and that's a sort of conventional. And I asked everybody whether they read that or not, what's going on or something else. My reading of it is um, along the same lines of what I've been saying. Some people were really troubled with my reading of the film.
And that's not an unlikely thing because of Lear. There's more evidence that Lear has that movie. Look there, look there, look there. Cordelia's I think he sees Cordelia in the next line. Everybody thinks he's mad. I don't think that's what's going on. Because Shakespeare had a sense of the other world all the way through his plays. So the modern skeptic doesn't see that. But so my sense is, it's hard for me to believe that in that dying or that dying moment, however we want that liminal moment to use a threshold. That, that all of that she put together and there was no way for her to see that and not see her own innocence. That she was too innocent, I mean in a negative way. In the sense in which everybody in Venice was too negative, too innocent. They let themselves be, a few was too innocent. I mean innocent in that way, not being used. Yeah, right. Not, and I think women are more susceptible. I think women are more susceptible to that emotion. You know, that, it's called that. Okay. Um, that there's a difference between being pure and allowing yourself to be used, to, to, to not be on guard. You know? And I think at that moment when she says, "Really, I myself commend me to my kind Lord," but she's even more Christ-like because she takes responsibility. She sees. So you either have a black-white view of this, and she's in this or something happens in that scene, and I think something happens with her, the way it does with Othello, that they both they both see things about themselves that's, um, that's Christ-like. Because she even says to Amelia, like you said, I love him for his faults, and at that moment she realizes that was early. That, yeah, yeah, but even as she's dying, she realizes all of Othello's faults even more fully. Yeah, and her own. And her own. Because she wasn't able to put it together. That's my and, sense. Right. I mean, there's no evidence. You right, even right. say she's covering, or something else is going on. And I think, I think something else is going on always in these endings. Shakespeare's doing just amazing things with these endings. Then to Hamlet with Polonius and Claudius uh, <laughs> saying he's going crazy. It's not insane crazy. Oh, it's, it's because he, Hamlet wouldn't be able to speak the way he is. It's, and a, it's, a, mask. it's a mask. It's a mask. He's putting, he's feigning yes. what he calls his antic disposition. Yes. But, then, but it's important for us to see at the same time what he's carrying. Yes. I mean, he's just, the burden. that's a lot. How are you? Uh, the woman he loves is being used, and he, 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 he I don't know if we get time to read from it, but he's just furious at her. She's, she doesn't see that she's being used. Um, there's nobody who turns to. I mean, all of this is going on inside of him, and I don't think it makes him mad, but I think he feigns it to keep everybody off guard because he's got to he's got to find a way of getting at Claudius, but. It's important also to see that there's not a character in literature has this private revelation. The modern mind tends to minimize it. I just don't think we can. It's and that's why it's like so he's it's unsettling. It, it, um, it's a lot of character, and I think he's amazing what he does with it. So. It does it matter how old he is? More important. Mm -hmm. Why do you say that? Well, because they never really, like, we know he's out of college, right? Because he went to university. So I'm putting him at early 20s. Mm -hmm. And then to have that kind of, like you said, the revelation and everything, and then to be able, because at that age, 
how many now, years? Uh, I think we lost. We, I know years, the modern, may have something the whole with psychology, the stages the and fields. I mean, I mean, I just. Of, of there were men who were kings. Yes. You know, it's yes. just we don't. It was. It's we, not a, we, a pleasant way. We've got this mechanical but, way of doing age in our world. I mean, I think I'm it's so unreal sometimes. But, but yes, he's happened, young and but at college. The Puritans, I mean, and, and in some ways immature. I mean, this is a harrowing testing. But to me, it's. I just don't think we should underestimate anything of what he does. And, and not see at the same time how capable, how extraordinarily capable he is of what he does. Theoretically true. That he's such a gifted young man. Right. Right. Well, I'm glad you're not finished with that because I didn't finish and I wasn't quite sure where you left off last week. So I was like, oh, I hope you're not too far behind. No, I don't think you are. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good weekend. Thanks. You too.